Welcome to the Midweek Bible Study with Ben Schaefer, the podcast where we dive deep into the timeless wisdom of Scripture, one verse at a time. I'm your host, Ben Schaefer, and I'm thrilled to have you join on our journey through the pages of the Bible. We are currently studying the fifth book in the New Testament called The Acts of the Apostles. So grab your Bible, something to write with, and let's get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for this this crowd, this group that you gather here today. Lord, I don't know what you got in store, but I know it's going to be good. I know that every time two or more are gathered seeking to know what you got to say, you always do something big. You always do something big. Even if it's not external, you do something internal. That's oftentimes something that we are exactly needing at an exact time. So timely. So, Lord, I just pray that right now over these people. I pray that for the listener who might be listening in, uh, that they might just encounter the, the, the your presence here today. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys, oh, it's such good good to see you guys. Got some new faces. Got some new uh, people in the room. Hopefully you're excited about jumping into God's word. Every time you jump into God's word, it's rewarding. Amen. I think it's absolutely uh, life-changing for me. So that's why we're doing this ministry. That's why we're doing this. It's because we're, it's like digging treasure. You, the more you dig, the more you find. And it's never disappointing. So right now we're in the middle of Philip's experience in Samaria. You guys remember Samaria was a was a town just north of Jerusalem. And Samaria was a group of these these uh, excommunicated Jews that got kicked to the curb after uh, the priest Ezra gave them the, the cold shoulder and said, you're no longer a Jew. You're no longer one of us. So they excommunicated them from Jerusalem, went and migrated to a town, uh, settled an area called Samaria. But now we got Philip. He's just, he's been uh, visiting. He visited this little, this little, uh, remember my map last week, this little town. And he visited there, and God did something huge. People started uh, started putting their faith in Jesus. He's performing these signs and wonders, uh, and and all sorts of these people are believing. He also con- he confronted and totally confounded a certain man we mentioned. Who was it last week? Starts with an S. Yep, Simon. Simon the sorcerer. So this guy was deep into black magic, dark the dark arts, witchcraft, I guess you'd call it. And he he made a, a, a profession out. He made a job out of, of practicing magic, performing signs and wonders through the power of Satan. So before Philip, Simon the magician, they called him the magician, um, had long impressed the crowds with all these powers and wonders and signs. And just a little side note, I don't know if a lot of Christians, a lot of people even realize this, but, you know, like, that's actually real. Like, I think a lot of times we think magic is like Santa Claus or something. It's nice to talk about, but it's not real. No, it's actually real. It's just demonic. It's actually powerful. It's just dark power. It's not power from God. It's power from Satan. And yeah, is it more powerful than God? No. But nevertheless, it is a sign. It can be a wonder, if you will in today's world, as well as the the world when we're looking at it right here. And he is so enamored with what Philip's doing that he gets a little bit, mm, I don't know what you want to call it, occupational curiosity. 
You ever do, uh, you know, you're in business and maybe you run a business. Some of you guys run a business and you find your competitor down the street doing what you do, maybe just a little bit better. You kind of want to go down there and see what's going on. Well, this is what happened with Philip and this Simon guy. He sees Simon doing, or it's Philip doing all these amazing things. So Simon wants to join in. So scripture says that even Simon said that he wanted to be baptized. And he actually, quote, believed. So then Simon began following Philip, studying his techniques, you know, tricks to the trade. What's, how, how is he doing this? I've never seen this. I went in on this, you know, and maybe if I can get this power, I can charge more for my services. So meanwhile, we saw the apostles, Peter and John, get the get the, uh, the news that something crazy is going on up in Samaria. And so they hit the road and head up north to go pick up to verse 14 and through 17. Somebody read that out loud, verse 14 through 17. The apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God. They sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Crazy. Okay, so the apostles traveled to Samaria, the area, the little the little town there, and they, they wanted to go validate what's going on. Why did they want to do that? Do you remember me talking about this last week? They're Samaritans, and their their classic mode of operation is counterfeit, fake. Hey, we're going to take something that the Jews did, and we're going to make something else. We're going to make our, our fake Torah. We're going to make a fake temple. And so now they're really skeptical about an actual move of God up in this Samaria area. So don't get the impression that they were going up to do this amazing ministry. No, no. They're going up there to check to see if this is legit. Because nine times out of ten, it's not legit in their mind. So this is this is the key that I want you guys to pick up on. Do you remember me talking about Peter being given the keys to the kingdom? Remember that whole thing? The keys to the kingdom. Where am I getting that? Well, somebody needs to read Matthew 16, 17 through 19. And this is going to explain what Jesus himself told Peter in terms of the keys to the kingdom. What are these keys to the kingdom? And we're going to talk about that. Somebody read it real quick. Chapter 16, verse 17. Through 19. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Have you ever, guys ever heard that, that, that passage before? This is a very confounding passage for a lot of believers, a lot of Christians. Each one of these groups that I talk about, what are the three groups? You guys remember? Every week almost I talk about these three groups. The first one is the Jews. The second one is the Samaritans. And the third, Gentiles, you and me. This is the, the order and the respective groups that the keys of the kingdom unlocked. What did they unlock? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of salvation from sin and death. 
Well, the first group of people to receive this crazy news was the Jews. The second one was the Samaritans, which we're right in the middle of. And the third one is yet to come, and that's the Gentiles, the rest of the world. Well, it's pretty crazy, but it's true. Jesus used Peter. Jesus used Peter to be the key holder, very specific to Peter. Let's, let's study this. This was the honor Peter received since he was the first apostle to receive Christ. Did you know that? He was the first to recognize Christ. And here we see that the recognition of Christ was not a mental ascent. It was a revelation from the Holy Spirit. He said, blessed are you, Simon Verona, because you didn't come up with that. You just simply gave that, got that revelation from God. You aren't able to understand without God's help, in other words. He, in turn, would be the one to open the gospel to the Jews, the Samaritans, and later on, the Gentiles. Once Peter turned the key, can it go back locked? Nope. We don't see that in Scripture. This given group, they remained an open door for the gospel for those groups, those three groups. The opening of one of these doors by Peter was always marked by an arrival of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in a visible and crazy, obvious way. Be so, so that we understand what's happening, right? Once the manifestation of the Spirit had occurred, it quickly subsided, we see. It didn't continue on. As much as some people would like to make a case for that, that is actually an isolated incident that just ceased to, to, cease to continue for a specific punctuated reason. In its place came the normal experience of new faith, listen to this, accompanied by an invisible dwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's where we're all today. When you become a believer, you're indwelled by His perfect Spirit to count you righteous before God. It's also worth noting that the three parts of salvation experience are shown, there's three parts, they're shown to happen in a different order for every one of these three groups. So as much as you guys might want to create a formula, there is no such thing. Man, have Christians tried to make formulas out of this thing for years. Well, this happens, then this happens, and this happens. See, we got it all figured out. Nice little box. Well, isn't it just like God to blow our boxes out and completely do what he wants to do? In other, it's also totally worth noting to look at these, these salvation experiences and see uh, what happened to each group and make some sense out of this. So let's do that. In the case of the Jewish disciples who began the church, first, listen to this. They experienced faith in God. Then they experienced the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Spirit baptism at Pentecost. And then they got baptized with water, right? Well, in chapter 8, what do we got the Samaritans doing? Something totally different. They entered the church for the first time, the, the, the faith in Jesus. The order is this. They first believed, followed by water baptism. Then they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Then you guys, you're going to notice that the Gentiles are a completely different order. So good luck trying to make a rule out of that and making a little nice little formula for all of us to understand. God can do what he wants to do. And in the church, the Jewish church never experienced even ever the laying on of hands. Notice there's this laying on of hands situation. People praying for each other with their hands, you know, putting their hands on them. It's no more complicated than that. Well, 
that was significant to the Samaritans when it wasn't significant to the Jews. What's going on with that? This step is only employed by the Samaritans and the Gentile groups. The Jews didn't, they must have some sanitary issues because they never laid hands on each other. Finally, we need to note that there's no speaking in tongues. You guys know what speaking in tongues is? Speaking in tongues is the ability to supernaturally speak another language that you don't know, that only the Holy Spirit can allow to happen. We've seen it across his history, it's befuddled millions of theologians. We can't understand unless you look through the lens of the Holy Spirit. This makes sense since the stated purpose of the gift of tongues is a sign to unbelieving Jews only. You hear me? That's pretty crazy to, to where, where did I get that? Well, 1 Corinthians 14, 22. The gift of tongues was specifically to unbelieving Jews. Very interesting. I'll let that ride. Since there are no unbelieving Jews present in Samaria, there was no need for that sign to be manifested. This is a further confirmation that the moment of salvation will not include these special manifestations of the Spirit absolutely every single time, except under biblically correct circumstances. Meaning, it's got to be God's thing. You don't need to go, well, is this actually from God? Well, nobody's speaking in tongues. Nobody's laying on of hands. No, you know, nobody's getting baptized. I guess this is from Satan. What, what are you talking about? No, 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 not at all. That's absolutely taking this out of the context. This is absolutely God's operation. That's the takeaway here. God's directing his church. Somebody get his, their Bible out. Let's read 18 through 25. Somebody with a nice little... Uh, uh, nice little narrating voice. Go ahead and read it. When Simon saw that the spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After that, or after they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Very nice. Yeah. Very well. Good job. So we let's go back to Simon. Simon's back in the picture. He finally believes he's found the source of Philip's power to his signs and wonders and his miracles that he's performing. People are getting healed yet, guys. Like people's hips are like, you know, getting healed and legs are growing and you know, bro, you know, diseases are are vanishing. And, and this guy's going, I got a business opportunity. I got to figure out where the power's coming from. Clearly, we have a situation where the Spirit of God is in charge here. And he doesn't know but to just say, I want it. I, he doesn't know what else to do. I just want this power. And more specifically, the apostle's ability. Listen to this. He doesn't just want the power. He wants the ability that the apostles have which is to bestow power upon somebody. He wants to be able to spread it around and hold the power. 
So clearly, the apostles are in charge here. Philip would have shown them respect and honor when they arrived. Philip is not an apostle. Do you remember this? The, the apostle was Peter and John. Remember the credentials of being an apostle? No more apostles today. Only into that, that day, I could go on for a long time on that argument. But this is proof positive that Philip respected the office of apostleship as directed by Jesus. But the apostle's office itself had a specific purpose as yielded underneath, under, uh, under uh, accountability to God's goodwill. So Simon draws the obvious conclusion, these men are the source of Philip's power. I, I finally figured out Peter and John are here. These are the big chiefs in charge. These guys are the big wigs. I got to go get my power from them. So he goes, and naturally, he hopes that these men may be willing to empower other men like Simon. So especially if there's a little incentive program for uh, for such a thing. So Simon goes a step farther, and he doesn't just want Philip's power. He wants the apostles to grant him their power. Like, take it from Philip and give it to me. He, he's like, I could make a good living doing this. He wants to go to the top of the corporate ladder. He wants to climb the rungs if possible. It's fair to conclude from this scene that Simon has not received the laying on of hands. Something to note. And therefore, he never experienced the arrival of the Spirit. A lot of people debate this, but it's never described in the text. And what is described is very disturbing. His willingness to obtain something spiritual with moolah, with the Benjamins. Maybe I can make you talk if I, if I just wave the little uh, some money under your nose. So as we consider Simon's offer, we have to ask ourselves the obvious question. You guys asking the question in your head yet? Is Simon just an immature believer, still caught up in his old ways? Or is he an unbeliever posing as a Christian and now shows his true colors? What do you guys think? It's kind of a toss-up, isn't it? He just got baptized. He just confessed faith in Jesus. Well, what's going on? Many commentators will line up on either side, so don't go look at your commentary. Uh, rather than trying to guess, I guess I'm over commentary. I would rather go to the guy that's actually an eyewitness on the scene and ask him, who's that? Peter. We actually know what Peter says. So we, we probably should just go with, with what Peter says, which let's look at what Peter's response is. In verse 20, Peter says, may your silver perish with you. Do you know the literal Greek translation for what that says is? <laughs> it actually says, it's, it's pretty strong words, actually. It's, uh, may, your, uh, may your silver and gold go with you to hell. Literally go to hell. Like, do you ever hear somebody ever say that to you? He literally said, <laughs> go to hell with all of your gold and silver. Strong words, but can I just offer something real quick? Nobody else that can say that has the power to make you go to hell. Right? It's just a slang word. May I suggest that an apostle is merely Peter is merely stating the obvious literal, literal statement. 
He's declaring that this man, listen to me really carefully, is on the road to hell, not heaven. He's stating it. In verse 21, he says, Simon's heart is not right before the Lord. Because of that, Simon has no part or portion in this matter. Is he saying, you're going to hell now that you just disobeyed and you're a bad person? No, that's not what he's saying. He's stating the obvious, that Simon has made his choice. The Greek matter, uh, the, the Greek word for matter in verse 21, you see that? Verse 21. He says, you don't have a portion in this matter. Do you know what the Greek word for matter is there? You should go to the Blue Letter Bible and look at that. It's the word logos. What's logos? It's the word. He literally says, you have no portion, which, which by the way, the word portion is a Greek word that means inheritance, saying you have no inheritance in the word, which means Christ. You guys follow me on that? So in verse 22, he says that Simon should repent for his wickedness. He gives him an opportunity to repent. Isn't that like God always giving us second chances? Pray for forgiveness, that if possible, the Lord would forgive you, Simon. And a believer would never need to hear such a statement. So why would Peter say such a thing? While a believer could certainly sin, do you guys sin, by the way, after you put your faith in Christ? I do. I do every day. Uh, probably on my way to, to work here, here today. Uh, uh, but there is never any doubt that a believer would ever not be forgiven, thanks to the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Only an unbeliever would ever or should ever hear such a statement. Clearly, the apostles didn't believe that Simon was a believer. Have I made my point? In verse 23, Peter says, I see that you are still in the bondage of iniquity. The word in Greek for iniquity literally means unrighteousness. Unrightness before God. This man's still in bondage to sin. He is an unbeliever. Romans 7, 12, 14, last verse here. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. See what I'm talking about? Peter is saying, Simon, you're still hooked. You're still hooked to sin. You haven't, you haven't been released from the bondage of sin. In the bondage, I can say this, this is hard for people to understand maybe, but the bondage of Christ, meaning we are now bonded to Christ as a believer. Bondage to sin pre-Jesus. Then perhaps, most telling of all, Simon says to Peter, please pray for me. Isn't this funny? He says, he, this is the common, you ever have somebody do that? You're like, man, you really feel like, man, I got to share, I got to share the gospel with this person, or I got I to gotta really share the, share the love of, of, of God with this person. And they go, eh, I'm good. I'm good, man. Which is totally their, their MO. We hear this whenever we encourage them to read the Bible, for example, or come to church. I hate using that statement because I, I don't want to guilt people to go to church. I want to encourage them to come on, connect to a family, man. It's, it's going to be awesome. But Whenever we have to have that conversation of repenting, darn it, Americans hate that word. 
repenting for sin. Oh, no, no, I don't want to hear about that. And people go, boop, boop, boop. They tell us to pray for them where they compliment us on our faith. You ever had somebody say that? Well, that's that's good for you, but you know, I'm good. I got my little my uh my things that I go to. You do your things, stay away from me, and we'll be okay. That's what Simon did. A polite way to deflect the conversation away from them and back on to us. Simon clearly instant instantly noticed uh, or made it clear that he's not interested in what Peter has to say. And Peter's own statement concerning his heart are a clear indictment. They tell us that Peter himself believed Simon was without faith. I hope I've made my clear, myself clear. Simon merely saw Philip as a competitor. A competitor. And he was trying to play the game. Simon was attached, has attached himself to a movement of selfish, cynical, hypocritical reasons. Simon is a type of, or an example in Christ of a, what is called a false confessor. Somebody who's like, got going to church with the t-shirt on that says, hey, I'm a part of the cool kids club, but they don't really believe anything that's being said. And I'm not saying that I'm not guilty of this. I'm saying I don't want to be a part of a movement of people who just sit there. You know what I mean? I'm saying that the body of Christ, we can teach people how to sing the songs. We can teach people how to dress a certain way, how to sit in rows, you know, but absolutely think about personally what Christ is asking you to be belong to a body or a club. Somebody once told me one time, I think his dad said, my dad said, you know, clubs wear matching t-shirts, memberships to clubs wearing matching t-shirts and just sit around and go nowhere. Teams wear matching t-shirts and go places. And I think of the body of Christ like that. A moving body goes places. They don't just sit there and go, well, we've put in our time. Now it's time to go home. You know, that's a very drastic juxtaposition to what a lot of people are used to in the body of Christ. A Christian faith brings benefits. What do I mean? immeasurable benefits, but they are largely spiritual. Did you know that? They're almost all spiritual. They're not, they're not always tangible benefits. And oftentimes, they're delayed. They're slow. When we expect them to be immediate and earthly, then we are de destined to be disappointed. It's not a transaction. And if we preach a what I call a carnal gospel, which is no gospel at all, we only attract more Simon the Sorcerers to be in our groups, in our clubs, <laughs> if you will, in our church. Meaning, carnal meaning, hey, if you become a Christian, you'll be happy. Does that say, does it say that? Happy? It says joyful in the midst of trials and tribulations. <laughs> does it say that we're going to get rich? No. Does it say that we're going to get famous? No. So if you, if you go that road, you're going to be disappointed. What kind of response might we have expected from Simon had he truly believed? Well, later on in the book of Acts in Acts 19, you guys are going to see something crazy. This is crazy. I'm going to read it. It says this, 
this group of magicians heard about the gospel and they repented of their, their practices. Acts 19.18, it says, Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices, and many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of, of everyone, their magic books. And they counted up the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. This is like almost a million dollars. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. So while I'm not suggesting that every new believer will instantaneously be throwing all of their books into the fire, as you will, we do kind of get to expect some changes, right? Like we should see some fruit in our own life. We should see some changes in discipleship, the progress, I guess I could call it. So that's where we need to come around and encourage each other in that process, a new believer. We admonish them as a believer to serve the Lord more faithfully. And if we don't see the fruit, what do we do? Kick them out? <laughs> no, no, we don't. We do what we did before. Love them. Share the gospel with them. Uh, serve them. Help. Give them a drink. Give them food. Help, help, help. That's what Jesus told us to do. Having established the church in Samaria, north of Jerusalem, the Lord now uses Philip to spread the gospel to the southern parts of Palestine. Now check this guy. Check this out, guys. Let's see if I can actually pull this up here. Come on. Come on. Okay, you guys see this little map? I'm a map nerd. Uh, come on. Come on, guys. There we go. Okay. So this is where Sebasti is. This is where Philip had just done his crazy, his, his whole signs and wonders, and all of the Samaritans came to Jesus, put their faith in Christ. Peter and Peter and John went up here. This is Sebasti. This is the, the old place that doesn't exist anymore, but this is what they were, they were, where they were. Then you see this little line here, Gaza. We all know where Gaza is, right? Uh, Gaza is uh, the Gaza Strip right here. There was a road called the Desert Road, and it's an old, old Hebrew, ancient, one of the oldest roads in the world, and they, they use brick to maintain it. Well, this road was the only way up into Jerusalem, this little guy right here, the only way up to Samaria was up here. Well, this desert road, now we find Philip going from Sebasti down to Gaza. Guys, you know what this is? A desert. <laughs> it's a desert. It's a total dry, arid wasteland of a desert. And this, this road is uh, the only way to get to Jerusalem. So there's like people walking along this road. The Lord, it shows 50 miles north northwest of Jerusalem is where this is at. So 50 miles by foot. That's a long road. That's a hike. I mean, I'm a backpacker. I think it's a big day when I go 8 to 10 miles, right? Well, 50 miles... You know, that's a long way on foot. So the Lord directs Philip with an angel of the Lord. Side note, whenever you see the word angel of the Lord, that's Jesus. That's actually Jesus. To a desert road in the middle of nowhere, about 50 miles to the south. Here again, we see the Lord directing the affairs of the church, by the way. Philip went, went to Samaria because of persecution, not because he had the great idea to reach Samaritans. It was under Jesus' direction. Likewise, he goes now south to the desert, not because it made sense to proclaim the gospel to the desert, but because the Lord wanted him to go preach there. 
What you guys think? Do you think you guys would ever do something like that? If Jesus told you to go do something that doesn't make sense, you're going to do it? I don't know. I've often had a lot of arguments with, with God over that. This road to Gaza connects Jerusalem with, uh, with a road that's called the VMR. The VMR is a uh, road that ran north-south along the Mediterranean. Now, this is, this is the only way to get up to Jerusalem. And so you, a lot of times you, you saw some traveling. You know, people would come into Gaza from Egypt, want to go to Jerusalem. So all the Jews were trying to get to Jerusalem. They would take the VMR. The, VMR. the Gaza road runs southwest from Jerusalem through the, the Negev Desert and connects to the VMR in a town of Gaza on the coast. So this, this VMR goes all the way down into Africa, and it, it, it connected to Egypt. Well, this road is a long stretch of road. You find yourself in the middle of absolute nowhere. There's no rest areas. There's no water. There's, it's, it's terrible. So what do you see? What do you guys see yourself if you put yourself in Philip's shoes? A, why the heck am I out here? What am I, am I going to die out here? He was literally in the middle of nowhere with no idea of what's going to happen next. You could, you could really get some serious cynicism going. What are you talking about? How am I supposed to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with rocks and jackrabbits? But the Lord knew that there would be an opportunity to reach new places through an encounter on this road. You guys know where this is going? At this point, along the road, a chariot. And he, he hears this chariot, clump, 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 the wheels, I'm sure far off because it's dead quiet, comes up behind him and passes Philip. Philip's walking, probably really slow. All of a sudden, this chariot flies past him. The chariot is came to a, a close. I mean, the chariot's not zooming really fast. This, the chariot comes to a stop up ahead, and uh, Philip notices that this man is an Ethiopian. An Ethiopian, not a Jew. Yet he had been worshiping in Jerusalem, coming back from Jerusalem, going home to Ethiopia. He's going back home, right? So he passes Philip. Remember Philip's headed this way? Comes, comes zooming past Philip. Well, He's a what is called a proselyte or a God-fearer, somebody who placed their faith in God through the Jewish practice. And he owned a Jewish scroll called Isaiah. We have it in our Bible. You got it right here, Isaiah. He had him in a scroll. It was a scroll, really expensive. He's coated and he's covered in gold. He's obviously super, super affluent. He, go, he pulls his scroll out, and he's reading it out loud. It's really, really rare and really, really expensive. So the fact that he's riding a chariot with a priceless jewel of an artifact is, is kind of odd, and he's reading it out loud. He owned this Jewish scroll, which would have been so rare and expensive, only a queen could have, uh, could have had this, and this is where he finds out he's a eunuch that actually is in the service of the queen of Ethiopia. And he, and he owns this. He, he has this in his possession. He's clearly devoted to his faith in a sincere and serious way because he's asking, he's, he, he's, he's reading this, right? 
He was therefore very wealthy if he has this. So he has everything the world could ever offer him. Keep that in mind. As a eunuch in the court of the Ethiopian queen, we know he was powerful and important riding a chariot driven by a chauffeur. Totally rich. Totally affluent. So here we have a man who is in some ways represented the other side of the coin now than Simon the Sorcerer. You see what Luke's doing? Juxtaposition. Like Samaritans, he was not a Jew, but he worshipped as a Jew. Sound familiar? Samaria. Samaritans. Therefore, like the Samaritans, he represented a unique group that knew of a Messiah and anticipated his arrival. They're looking for him. You remember the Magi in, in uh, Jesus' birth? They were anticipating a coming Messiah. They weren't dumb. They knew exactly what this prophecy said. Therefore, he, he was anticipating it. Unlike true Gentiles who never heard a, of a Jewish Messiah ever, much less were anticipating his arrival, he was in a unique position to receive the gospel. Listen to me really carefully. So the Lord uses Philip to reach him in a way that is very similar, potentially the same way, as the Samaritans. And the second half of the story in Acts 8 fills the picture of an opening of the gospel to a nearly Jewish camp, close to Jewish Samaritans. The man is reading Isaiah out loud, we're told, which was the normal tradition for the men of the East, especially in the Near Eastern tradition. You never read it to yourself, ever. You read it out loud. And he's he's following protocol. So he's reading God's word out loud. Can somebody read 29, sorry, verse 29 through 35? I want to keep this map up just for fun. 29 through 35, somebody really loud. Fear told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked? <laughs> a he said. Someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. How many more verses? 35. This is a passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his, his descendants? For life was, his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is a prophet talking about himself or someone else? <laughs> then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Notice Luke's emphasis on the actions of the Spirit and the importance of God's Word in this encounter. Bingo. Big deal. That's the target. That's the center centerpiece. This is a classic moment of evangelism. Look at these elements that are in play right here. All right? First, the man seeking. The man seeking true the true God. Not just seeking spirituality. Not seeking gods. He's seeking God. Number two, he's reading the Word of God, just like we're doing today. He's reading the Word of God. Third, the Spirit of God directs Philip to this man to explain the Scripture. And the last, and by that explanation of the Scripture, Jesus Christ is revealed in the man's heart. 
That's evangelism. It's no more complicated than that. Philip first asks if a man understands what he is reading. Philip goes, you know what that's, do you understand that? You ever hear me ask you guys that? Do you guys get what I just said? You know, I'll say that, you know. Do you even get what you just read? Well, here along this crazy little road, Philip finds himself encountering an Ethiopian eunuch at Ashdod. So, sorry, not Ashdod, just below Ashdod. And he's about ready to have the answer right here to the in, the impending question, why am I out here, God? Why'd you send me out to this godforsaken literal country? And boom, you have to know the light bulbs went off. Philip asked that question, do you know who he's talking about in that passage in Isaiah? The question in Greek implies, did the man understand the person described in Isaiah's account? Some people get real confused about that passage, but that's what it means in the Greek. Philip knows to ask because the man is reading out loud. Do you even know who that's talking about? The eunuch invites Philip. He goes, whoa, hold on. Hey, you, get over here. The eunuch invites Philip to explain, and so now they ride together obviously, for a distance. Probably a really welcome ride to be able to actually ride in the chariot. Philip doesn't know where he's going and has no plans for the evening, except for that that big party down the road with some rocks and some cactus. He's got nowhere to go, no plans. God, what do you got? Now, all of a sudden, he's on a chariot with this Ethiopian eunuch. Sounds like a normal day to a Christian. Philip doesn't know. He has apparently put all earthly issues and concerns away for the moment and is simply riding along. This is so pure. This is so perfect for me to remember. He just completely negated all of his stress. Put it all aside. What am I going to eat? Doesn't matter. What am I going to drink? Doesn't matter. Where am I going? Doesn't matter. What did I do yesterday? Doesn't matter. What about tomorrow? Doesn't matter. He's literally riding along with this person and the Spirit. There's one more person in in the chariot, the Holy Spirit. Literally, he's just going with the flow. The man was reading Isaiah 53, and then it quotes this. In verse 33, the Scripture asks, Who will relate his generation? You know what this means? This means... Who will explain Jesus? This is a lament. Isaiah the prophet's lamenting. Follow me on this one. This is hard to understand a little bit. In Isaiah, the the prophet Isaiah is lamenting. It's a passage of lament saying that nobody will be around to explain Jesus to Jesus' family. Okay? This means who will explain Jesus to Jesus' own generation? The sense of this line in Isaiah 53 is a lament that Jesus' own people will not believe in the gospel. Ironically, here is a non-Jew reading about the seeking to know this Christ issue, while a Jew explains it to him. Philip, he's a Hellenistic Jew. 
fulfilling Isaiah's very words that Jesus's own generation will not follow while others will. The man then asks, who is speaking? Who is this speaking about? Isaiah himself or someone else? Then Philip goes, oh, yeah. He pops it right in there and he says, seizes the opportunity. He explains that he's talking about Jesus, baby. It's Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. You know, you heard about him. But Luke says, Philip used many other Old Testament scriptures as well to preach who Jesus was according to scripture and the fulfillment of the Messiah. While the text never covers the eunuch's reaction to this news, we understand because what happens next? This conversation is in stark contrast, by the way, to, the, to Simon the sorcerer. Here, belief in the gospel wasn't produced by signs and wonders, was it? Nobody got healed, nobody got raised from the dead, nobody's hip, you know, got fixed, nobody, no, no miracles. Just scripture. In Samaria, the signs were included to validate the opening of the gospel to Samaritans. Here, there's no need for such a thing. Remember, this man is rich and powerful, and Philip is lowly, poor, and thoroughly unimpressive. He probably stinks. Literally. He's wearing rags. I mean, he's, he's not impressive at all. Acts 8, 36 through 38, I'm going to read it. It goes like this. Meaning, there's nothing here profound to prove God's power other than God's power. It says this, as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized right now? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Eventually, somewhere in Philip's discussion, he must have brought up the issue of baptism. Because Jesus did. Philip must have explained how Jesus himself had commanded any who believe in him should demonstrate his faith through baptism. So, he's like, where's some water, man? Where's some water? Can I make a little side note? And if you're my friend, and if I've ever told, told talked to you about Jesus, you've heard me say, the very first thing you should be looking for after you come to Jesus is some water. <laughs> it's not a religious act. It's just a response to make it public, man. Like if I'm a Husker fan, man, I'm going to go out and buy me a t-shirt. I want the world to know. And I'm a Husker fan. This is a lot bigger deal than being a football fanatic. Water is a symbolic gesture to seal the deal. Even though the deal has been sealed, y'all. It's like a wedding ring. I'm married, y'all. Woo! I'm taken. I don't need to go to those dating apps no more. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I'm taken. He can assume Philip gave the eunuch this background because this is what he asked for. Where's some water? Did you guys connect the dots yet? We're in the Negev desert. Why is there water in the Negev desert? There's never water right here. Never. Well, except for the Mediterranean, but they're not even close to the Mediterranean. He sees water and he goes, there, right there. Let's get baptized right now. Now consider they're in the middle of the desert and the odds finding a pool standing in water, much less even inhabitable, like nothing I'd want to dunk myself in, is astronomically crazy. 
proof that God is in play here. Could he make a pool of water up here? Sure can. And the eunuch recognizes the rarity of this opportunity, which is why he seizes it and asks to be baptized. Do you ever have that feeling? You're sitting there getting prompted and poked by the Lord. You, you know it. Nobody else is talking to you. You're, you know you've got to move, and you say this to the Lord. I'll do it next week. I'll wait for another pool. <laughs> How many times have I told God that? Sometimes you got to wake up and see that the pool is from God himself. The eunuch didn't wait for the possibility of another pool to show up later. He knew this was the one. And when he asked what prevented him from being baptized, Philip says, you believe? Isn't that beautiful? There's no religious classes you have to take. You don't have to come to the midweek Bible study. You don't have to have a badge. You don't have to be certified. Do you believe? Yes or no? The answer is yes. That's what I love about this. When, when people get baptized in our church, they literally say, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ to be the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life? And they literally have, they just put the microphone in front of them and they say, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've never had one say no yet. Yeah. And that is it. That's the credential. No seminary background, no certificate and award. And he goes, then let's do this. In his, I can just see him in his gold and his, his robes. The whole nine yards. I keep telling people, you know what uh, pastors should have uh, ready stocked in the back green room? It's towels. I mean, if a towel is going to keep you from getting baptized today, brothers and sisters, then I can go to Walmart and buy you a towel. But if there is a chance and the Holy Spirit is poking you and prompting you to get baptized, let's make it public. So that goes for all y'all. If you guys need to get baptized... I know where I can get some water if you guys need to get baptized. I'll do it. There's plenty of people around here in West Omaha with pools. <laughs> There's no other requirement. Last scripture is 39, 39 and 40. It says, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him. <laughs> wait, 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 what? What? What just happened? What's going on? But he went away on his way rejoicing. But Philip found him <laughs> found himself at as Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Ashdod is the Greek word for is the Greek name for that city. He came to Ashdod. So wait a minute. What? How did that happen? Um He's 20 miles south on the on the via VMR with this Ethiopian eunuch, and now he's translated literally 20 miles north instantaneously. You ever watch Star Trek? Yeah. Same stuff. There's about six times in scripture where this has happened. This is one of them. No explanation other than something God. Philip lands in this town, and he goes, well, evidently it's time for me to tell Jesus, talk to these people about Jesus. And he goes all the way up through Joppa, up to Caesarea, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ through the little towns. 
this is a, a testament to, to, I hope, the profound power Jesus demonstrates when it comes to directing his people. Don't think that he's far off and thinking, thinking, misthinking or misjudging his ability to direct his people. I mean, this is proof positive that he will do what he needs to do to direct his church. That's why Acts is so powerful, because this is a travel journal in proof to what God did with a few normal people to do something profound. You remember me talking about Paul, how he was a great evangelist, even when he was a murderer? <laughs> if he wouldn't have started persecuting the Christians, Asia Minor would not be reached for the gospel. Europe, Germany, uh, America, the South, North, all the continents would not know about this man, Jesus, unless he would have intervened and forced the Jews out of Jerusalem. Isn't that satisfying to know that you need no special skills or abilities to be used by the creator of the universe because he loves you. He, he, he loves you and there's nothing you can do about it. You can push him off. You can say, hey, nope, I don't want your love. Too bad. He loves you. That's a thing to wrestle with today. Then he will direct his church as he sees fit according to his will. Let's talk about some reflection questions, y'all. <clears throat> I don't know if this is, <clears throat> I don't know if you guys uh, had any light bulbs come on today, but we're almost done here. And I want you guys to see some of these, these uh, reflection questions just, just by way of after we go through all of this data, all this information, sometimes it's hard to go, well, what about like what, what, what do you want what, what about me? Like what are you what are you doing in my life, God? Well, here's a couple sp specific reflection questions that bubbled up for me. In my perception of certain people groups, whole are is there my perception of certain people groups holding me back from sharing the gospel with them. Is there a group of type? I mean, I'm don't need to raise your hand. This is really down and dirty. Is there a group of humans that you stay away from? Is there a Samaritan group in your in your life that God is asking you specifically? I know there is to me to go to. And I just go, you know, kicking rocks. Oh, man. Maybe next year. Number two, is there any group that I'm shying away from currently in my life out of disobedience? Walking away from obedience, saying, again, just inconvenient, God. I don't like those people. Those kinds of people are annoying. Fill in the blanks. They don't think like I do. You know what, guys? That's what the world does. That's not the kingdom of God. I hate to spread this to the, this truth bomb, but in heaven, we all going to be together. <laughs> I mean, we're all going to be sharing the banqueting table. Every color, every size, every nation, tongue, tribe, every human is a reflection of an almighty, artistic, 
colorful, amazing God. And if we got people groups that we steer clear from, stop for a second and check yourself. Just like Philip, man, I'm glad he didn't steer away from those darn Samaritans. Number three, have I unknowingly adopted an incorrect formula of how God works? Remember how I talked about those three people groups? Saying, well, this is what he does, and then this, and this, and this, and this. Well, did you miss step three? Well, it must not be real. Guys, get get, get your hands off those. Man, I got to be honest, man. It's, it's so tempting to put God in a box, isn't it? Four, if someone is not a follower of Christ, what is my attitude towards them? Do I just go, well, I can't, I can't be around these people anymore? Could it could be a coworker at a factory, and you're just, you know what, listen, I can't be around you anymore because I'm righteous and you're not. Trust me, they already know what you don't stand for. Trust me. So why don't you go love them? Why don't we go and love people? And I, I know that I could preach for hours about that, but man, I'm talking to myself. Talking to myself today. Philip sure taught me a lesson about what I need to do next and how I need to love people and share the best news out right now. The gospel of Jesus. Freedom from sin and slavery to death forever. Eternity. That's <laughs> just this is amazing. Once you're adopted into the family of God, it is permanent, permanent inheritance. It's eternal. It's secure. It's a joy everlasting. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this amazing group of people. Ask that your spirit would do a, a ministry even after the class is over. Thank you for the book of Acts and Luke writing it. Pray that you would give us the courage and the, and the stamina to keep going through this book. Man, it's such an amazing uh, journey. Help, help me say what you want to say. Do what you want to do. And help prompt us and prod us into the areas of life and the in the, the sanctification that we need to uh, peer into. Lord, I ask that if you're stirring in any of our hearts that, that these amazing people, the people, or if you're listening right now, you would take steps to either place your faith in Christ or go find some water. <laughs> we love you. We thank you for this moment. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.